uh, tonight we are going to, excuse me, my eye is itching here. We're going to finish up the attributes of God um, in this paragraph uh, with most absolute. Uh, It's a very short uh, section here. And then we will uh, push on to uh, the next part of the confession uh, in this, I should say the confession, the next part of this paragraph that we're working through. So um, we are at most absolute This is in uh, the packet I handed out last week, part five of your notes. Uh, If you care to look, there is one uh, lengthy quote that we'll be reading, so you may want to uh, see that. Okay, so when we speak of the absoluteness of God, we are referring to, in one sense, his objectivity. um, That there is no subjective nature to God. So God is in every way objective and absolute, as the confession says. Um, and really, this is, um, this is an inference from the reality of God's immutability. If God is immutable, if he's unchangeable, um, then there can't be any subjectivity about him. He can't sway in one direction to the next and, um, and have uh, sort of this... Um, this way about him where we never truly know uh, what things are going to be like. Um, he's uh, To go on with absoluteness is the issue of him being self-sufficient. In other words, God is not dependent on anyone. He's not dependent on anything. Um, and all of the external works of God are always 100% consistent with his Righteousness. So when we speak of God's righteousness, we're really dealing with his essence as God. Um, so quote, uh, quote here from um, James Dolezal, who um, I had mentioned previously. He has a book that uh, he, he, he deals with this doctrine of the absoluteness of God. Um, but it's, he relates it to the simplicity of God, which we've dealt with, God without um, parts. Um, this is what he says of the absoluteness of God. This means that no principle or power stands back of or alongside God by which he instantiates or understands his existence and essence. He alone is the sufficient reason for his own existence, essence, and attributes. He does not possess his perfections by relation to anything or anyone other than himself. So let's just pause there. What what would we be saying of God if we said that he wasn't absolute, given that definition? No principle or power stands back of or alongside God by which he instantiates or understands his existence and essence. He alone is the sufficient reason for his own existence, essence, and attributes. He does not possess his perfections by relation to anything or anyone other than himself. So if we deny absoluteness, what are we saying about God? Right, so there are other things that exist that are as God. And beyond that, that God is dependent upon, that he would 
Um, and again, this is very much related to several other things we've discussed, but that he, uh, his existence or his essence or his attributes, whatever way we deny it, um, is dependent upon something outside of himself, which we recognize to be not reality. Because if that's the case, then what do we have to say about God? Okay, very simply, he's not God. But what do we say about God as um, eternal in that, in that sense? Exactly. If God depends on something for his existence, that means something came before him. And so we have to deny that outright and say that the biblical, um, the biblical evidence does not point to that. Uh, the doctrine of divine simplicity, which we've discussed before and in great detail, gives an explanation of um, God being entirely sufficient in and of himself. So if you recall, simplicity deals with all of the attributes of God in their fullness, functioning together and at the same time, um, and there is no... Uh, there is no division. It's not a, it's not a pie chart with all of his different attributes, uh, a slice of the pie. Um, you can take all the attributes and layer them together, and they are all functioning um, at the same time in the fullness of each of them. Um, so this tells us that God is entirely sufficient, and uh, he doesn't, obviously we've said, he doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything. Um, but he can only be most absolute if he is without parts. Because if God is in, if he has parts, or if he is not uh, a God of simplicity, then he's dependent upon those parts for his existence. So, if God is um, divided by his various attributes, so if we say, uh, well, a slice of God is his holiness and a slice is his love and a slice is his wrath and we go that route. Um, when we take one of those out, then God uh, is no longer what he has always been. He's dependent at that point upon those things to make him up to be God as he is. Um, so this is, the, this is why this is of vital importance in our understanding of uh, of God as uh, in his essence. Um, and some of these things, you know, I, I've said before, some of them seem uh, at first kind of mentioned and working through them to kind of be these lofty metaphysical things that um, we look at and say, does that, does it really matter? Um, but when we start uh, to kind of peel back the layers a little bit, we start to see it really gets to some very fundamental issues about God and his nature. Um, the same with something like the impassibility of God and God uh, not suffering and having mood swings. Uh, when we start to understand these things a little bit more, we start to have a greater trust in um, the, uh, the resoluteness, the foundation that will not shake, uh, that is God himself. And so um, it is very helpful in, uh, in establishing that foundation. Uh, again, James Dolezal says, if God were composed of parts in any sense, he would be dependent upon those parts for his very being. And thus the parts would be ontologically prior to him. They would exist before him. 
If this were the case, he would not be most absolute. That is, wholly self-sufficient and the first principle of all things, like we've said. Thus, only if God is without parts can he be most absolute. Um, Because he doesn't depend on those things for his existence. He simply is. And those are um, what God is. Um, There's a, a lengthy quote that is in your notes so if you want to if you do better following along i will alert you now so we can uh, read along uh, together this yeah it's the it's the last not your end notes obviously but it's the last of uh last of the pages of notes here this is uh, herman bovink he writes by virtue of himself He is goodness, holiness, wisdom, life, light, truth, and so on. He is supreme in everything. Supreme being, supreme goodness, supreme truth, supreme beauty. He is the perfect, highest, and most excellent being than whom nothing better can exist or be thought. All being is contained in him. He is a boundless ocean of being. If you have said of God that he is good, great, blessed, wise, or any other such quality, it is summed up in a single word. He is, and that's obviously the English and the Latin, it's one word. (laughs) Indeed, for him to be is to be all these things. Even if you add a hundred such qualities, you have not gone outside the boundaries of his being. Having said them all, you have added nothing Having said none of them, you have subtracted nothing. And again, this comes back to what he said, the simple reality that he is. We can talk about all of his attributes as we've done. We can deal with all of the various ins and outs of the metaphysical makeup of God, which we've done. Uh, But at the end of the day, this is the reality that all of this speaks to. He is. And this is how the paragraph of chapter 2, the first paragraph begins, right? Is this reality of, um, of God's existence, that God is um, and there, there is no other. And we dealt with the name of God. I am who I am. He says that himself. Uh, he speaks of himself in that way. So God has made himself known in that absolute sense. I am. Um, and God is absolutely distinct from all other creatures, as we've uh, as we've addressed. So, um, th- so the absoluteness of God really is taking all of these things we've looked at over several weeks now, and all the attributes and everything else, and bringing them to this one reality that God is, and um, and we can kind of toss everything into that bin. He's immutable. He is without body, parts, or passions, and in His holiness, in His um, in His omnipotence, in His omnipresence, and all of these things, all of these things are most absolute. Um, they are objective in every sense, and He is self-sufficient. Um, any any questions or thoughts on that before we we push on to the next uh, part? Okay. Well, the next um, the next part of this paragraph 
is the section that begins with working all things. If you're if you're looking at the confession also in your notes, I have it. Um, it's in bold typeface there. Uh, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. So what... Uh, In that first part of the statement, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. What are the two things that we are uh, addressing in there? What is it for God to work all things according to the counsel of his own immutable will? Okay, we'll speak of his sovereignty, but um, very closely related to his sovereignty is the issue of providence. And before we push it, let me, let me explain the difference because sometimes we use those words, but most of the time we kind of use them synonymously, but they really are different. The sovereignty of God speaks of his power. It's more of a statement of his, um, his ability. God is all powerful um, and he is in control of all of these things. Uh, providence is speaking of the means of his sovereignty, the things. And, and, you know, we, we speak about, you know, providentially something happens. Well, this is a means of God. It is his providence when that, so, um, you know, instead of good luck, you might say good providence. (laughs) May the means of God, uh, fall in your favor in terms of how this uh, comes about according to what you desire. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a great example or a great explanation of that. God is expressing his sovereignty um, through his providence, all of the means which bring about his desired ends. So when we speak of this, when, when we're looking at this statement, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will. Think back, if you are here last week, we dealt with the secret and revealed will of God. So we're saying whatever the end will is of God, His providence works toward that end. And he is sovereignly over all of it. In other words, he he has the power. He um, ordains these things to be. And it's all worked out through his his providential dealings. So our confession deals with um, the decree of God in chapter 3 and the providence of God in chapter 5 in great detail. So really, this is a summary statement in this paragraph to... um, uh, to deal with these uh, elements of God, but the writers of the confession obviously found it um, important, and you'll see why when we get there as to deal with them separately. Um, but nevertheless, they are um, they are here, and so we will deal with them on a, a summary level. Um, let's let's work through some of the um, implications of this. Um, related to uh, Scripture. So um, if you look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14, um, again, it's in your notes if you want to look at that on the bottom of page 1. Isaiah asks, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? 
So let's stop there. What are some other places we kind of hear this sort of language in the Bible? What other uh, maybe passages or um, you don't have to quote them or give us uh, specific reference, but what other places in the Bible do you hear this sort of rhetorical language? Say again? Yeah, Job. The last whole section of Job, right? God is looking at Job and he's saying, um, and it, it seems so sarcastic, really. <laughs> he says, Job, remind me, please. Uh, where were you when I set all of the, uh, the world in place? Uh, where, were, where were you when I placed all of the sand on the seashore and uh, the birds in the sky and this and that? And, you know, obviously Job is um, sitting there hanging his head and, <laughs> dang it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this is, uh, this is very much um, uh, what we see in Job. Where else might we see this? Yeah. Um, this is uh, Romans, uh, the end of Romans 11, his great doxology. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So the same kind of language. And I, I assume he picks up on that from Isaiah here because it's uh, very similar. So in other words, as we, use, uh, as we speak of that, we're speaking of the knowledge of God and the wisdom of God, which we've addressed um, he's all, he, he has all knowledge, he is all wise. So there's no need, again, speaking of his absoluteness, for any external counsel. Again, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, this is uh, God speaking. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So nothing that God has determined and purposed to stand uh, will be changed. God has decreed that all things will come to pass as they do, and none can thwart that. So obviously, um, this very quickly raises some objections uh, for um, Probably for all of us, if we're honest, as we initially deal with this sort of idea. The most uh, problematic one for us, we talked about a bit last week, is the problem of evil. If we're saying that God has decreed all things to come to pass as they do, and nothing can thwart him, then why does evil exist? Because he is good, holy, loving, and righteous in every way. This... uh, And certainly this has uh, led many people um, to reject God altogether. Um, It leads others to um, invent philosophies that don't align with the scriptural evidence, um, but nevertheless um, seek to appease um, this kind of tension. Um, So we have to deal with it. Because the, uh, the declaration is this cannot be, when seeing evil, this cannot be the will of God because he's holy, loving, and righteous in every way. Um, and you name it, uh, there are numerous atrocities in the world that we can think of that we would look at them and say, what, you know, this really kind of rocks our world when it comes to our understanding of God's providence. Think of, all of us sort of have one uh, thing that 
probably more than anything just kind of sets us over the edge in terms of when we think about it or when we see it happen or when, you know, when we read it in the news, it just, we just shake our heads. We are almost speechless because it's just so evil. Um, and yet we have to deal with this reality of God's providence in those things. So the objection is presented kind of in a threefold sense here. The first statement being God is holy, loving, and righteous in every way. And we certainly agree with that. Second is that evil exists. So the conclusion that's drawn from that is God cannot decree or providentially preside over evil. Because in our minds initially we would think these two things can't, they don't, they don't work, right? God God does not um, uh, God does not participate in evil. We recognize that. God does not tempt. We looked at those things last week. Um, so what, uh, what can we do with that? Well, some would conclude then that God is not decreeing or providentially presiding over these things that come about and turn out to be evil. But what does that conclusion say then about, about God? Okay, well, let's, to be fair to those who would hold this position, they would not deny God's sovereignty. They would say God is sovereign. Um, what have you heard? How, how would it be explained, perhaps? Okay, open theism certainly is one way. Um, God doesn't know the future. God, you know, he can't know it because it hasn't happened yet. That's, that's one. Yes. Okay, yeah, so that's one explanation that um, that the goodness of God is facing off with the evil of Satan and these are, there's this constant conflict going on. So all evil then gets um, attributed solely to the work of Satan, right? That um, Satan did this. And is there reality behind that? Is there truth behind that statement? Absolutely. Yeah, we looked at that last week, right, with David taking the census. Who incited David to take the census? One passage says God incited him. One says Satan incited him, and David took full responsibility for doing it, right? Uh, you see the same thing in, uh, in Job. Um, God told Satan. Uh, we see um, through... Um, was it the Amalekites that came and uh, took his, uh, killed his uh, children and took all of his um, livestock and everything else? So who's responsible? Is it God or Satan or the Amalekites? Yes. <laughs> we just have to understand and, and start to work through the issues of how all of that comes. But So the problem with this kind of objection, and I... I absolutely think that this is one of those areas where we can look at and say, um, I, I can understand why someone would, you know, wrestle here. I had heard, um, I was at a Ligonier conference several years back, and this is something where um, John MacArthur was preaching, and he says, uh, when it comes to the area of evil, uh, many people are on a, a rescue mission to get God off the hook. Because we don't want, we don't want God to be in that position. <laughs> but God doesn't need to be let off the hook, and that's uh, that's the issue um, that we need to struggle through. 
Um, a quote, did you find, was I wrong? Okay, the Chaldeans, yes. Very good, thank you. You're right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That's, um, I had lunch with Devin Bell uh, yesterday. He's a pastor in Pooler. He's going to preach in our missions conference. But he um, he told me, he said, uh, you know, if we're wrong about the sovereignty of God, then uh, we'll have to stand before God and say, I'm sorry, God, I gave you too much credit. Um, but, you know, think of, uh, think of the alternative. <laughs> I'd rather give God too much credit than not enough, right? Um, but I think you're absolutely right. Um, if, if in any way, shape, or form we shrink God uh, from what He truly is, then these things become all the more difficult to deal with. There is nothing more comforting to me, and I think I said this last week, in knowing that one day I am likely to suffer in some way and knowing that God sovereignly presides over it and everything leading up to it is as a result of His providence to bring about the greatest end. Verses like Romans 8.28 don't make sense apart from that. They can't possibly be. Yeah. Yeah, I think... Yeah, well, we certainly can see, you know... Much of, much of the evil that we encounter is a result of God's judgment. I don't think we can deny that. I think that's certainly uh, something. But we certainly wouldn't want to say it's not evil. Yeah, we, evil is evil. We uh, shall not call it, uh, good what God calls evil. So, Well, I, I don't know that that's, that's not revealed in terms of when we see things being worked out, you mean? Yeah, I think God's, you know, evil perhaps is the means by which the justice of God is being. And you see that in the Bible, right? You see many evil acts within the scriptures that God is utilizing for uh, his determined ends. Particularly as you read the Minor Prophets. There's a lot of evil things going on in the Minor Prophets. But all of it, you, you get this sense from the mouths of the prophets and from the mouth of God himself that, oh, I'm, I'm doing this, by the way, because you people are all screwed up and I'm trying to fix things here. Um, and uh, you see it time and time again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. When we, you remember we addressed Joseph when uh, we talked about the wisdom of God and his wisdom being that he sees all of that through, his providence being all of those actions that took place in the life of Joseph. Did you have something, Melissa? Sure. Right. Yeah, well, we have to, you know, even if we think about that in its logical steps, um, before God created was only God. Only God existed. So everything to include the garden and the serpent and, um, you know, was created by the hand of God. If everything was set in place and ordered according to his sovereign decree, then we have to conclude that the serpent was in the garden to tempt Eve in order that the fall might happen. Paul says that in Romans 8, in essence. It's a very passing statement that's easy to miss, but he said... um, that the world is subjected to futility in hope. Subjected to futility in hope. In other words, God did this because he has greater purposes beyond it. 
And that greater purpose, of course, is redemption in Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a great uh, statement in, that I quoted here from Arthur uh, Pink. He says, To declare that the Creator's original plan has been frustrated by sin is to dethrone God. To suggest that God was taken by surprise in Eden and that he is now attempting to remedy an unforeseen calamity is to degrade the Most High to the level of a finite, erring mortal. To argue that man is a free moral agent and the determiner of his own destiny and that therefore he has the power to checkmate his maker is to strip God of the attribute of omnipresence. To say that the creature has burst the bounds assigned by his creator and that God is now practically a helpless spectator before the sin and suffering entailed by Adam's fall is to repudiate the express declaration of his holy writ, namely, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee, the remainder of wrath shalt thou restrain. In a word, to deny the sovereignty of God is to enter upon a path which, if followed to its logical terminus, is to arrive at blank atheism. There's a fantastic quote from Pink there. Um, that they're, you know, dealing with the problem of evil is fraught with difficulties in our minds and in our hearts. No doubt about it. But to deal with it in a sense where we remove God from the picture is to remove God from everything. And in the end, we have a functional atheism that we're working with. So, Right, so what do we have to conclude about evil? Where did evil originate? <laughs> right? I mean, again, we're on, you know, you start saying these things, the ground starts to shake a little bit, and like, am I allowed to say that about God? But, you know, we, <laughs> we have to. We have to because this is where the scriptures bring us. Um, but remember, all of that said, God does not find himself in the presence of evil. And God himself is not the doer of evil. Very tight tension that we have to hold. And so we get to what we discussed last week, the use of secondary means, which is, as we're discussing tonight, his providence, his providential workings of things, um, that uh, God uses secondary means to bring about his purposes so that he's not the one who is um, doing. So some would look at that and say, well, that's not really fair. <laughs> uh, but Paul would respond in Romans 9, who are you, O oh man, to question God? <laughs> He's going to do whatever he wants. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And when we deal with uh, the next section here, we'll really bring into light the ultimate answer to all of this. Um, is that uh, our tendency is to think along those lines of fairness and justice and everything else from our perspective because in the end we're thinking, well... This is ultimately about me. When the, all of God's workings in the end are ultimately about his own glory, not about us. And so Paul can make statements like he does in Romans 9 to say, um, you know, God will redeem the righteous and he will uh, condemn uh, those who are unrighteous all to the praise of his glorious grace. It's about him. It's about his glory. And will uh, will the... Um, 
will that which is um, uh, the uh, will the pot say to the potter, um, why did you make me this way? Uh, obviously, that's a very silly rhetorical question. Of course not. So, uh, probably one of the most helpful examples for me. I don't know if I've used it on uh, in here or not in dealing with this issue of primary, secondary um, causes um, is uh, um, if, if we consider the play Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Um, if you don't know the story, um, King Duncan is one of the characters in Macbeth, and uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth conspire to have him killed, and uh, in the end, um, things, um, things get all messed up. The blood is on the hands of Macbeth, and he starts to have all these nightmares and hallucinations about uh, this murder of King Duncan and everything else. So um, as we read that play, um, who is responsible for the death of King Duncan? Macbeth, right? I mean, if we're reading the play and, or we're watching the movie or whatever, watching the play, uh, in the end, who's, who's, who has blood on their hands? Well, uh, Macbeth. Um, but who wrote the play? William Shakespeare. So who's responsible for the death of King Duncan? Macbeth or William Shakespeare? Yes. <laughs> but who carries the responsibility in terms of the one who is to be, um, you know, this is where we get to the issue of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Did Macbeth have a desire to kill King Duncan? Well, yes, of course. Uh, was he coerced or anything else to do it? No, we don't see that at all. But was it written into the sovereign plan of William, uh, of William Shakespeare to bring about the intended end of his entire uh, stage play? Absolutely. And so that's a very small scale that we can think of what God is doing on a grander scale. Um, that God is overseeing, orchestrating all of this. He's written it all out from beginning to end. Um, but we are, we are responsible and functioning within that. And again, you know, it's, we say it often and it's a very simple conclusion. But at the end of the day, um, we don't want justice. We don't want ultimate divine justice uh, in the sense that we get what we deserve. Nobody does. Um, so, instead of this threefold thing that I've out, outlined in terms of objections, a more biblical approach to the decree and providence in relationship to evil is this. First, God is holy, loving, and righteous in every way. Second, God is sovereign over all creation, which is entirely dependent upon him for existence. Nothing would exist if for even a second God ceased being God. It would all just be done. Third, evil exists. So what can our conclusion be? God is holy, loving, and righteous in every way and is sovereign over all things to include evil. Now, that's an uncomfortable tension. There is admittedly mystery involved in all of that. But it is what the Bible points us to. And to try and get beyond that and resolve the tension, we're going to put ourselves in places where the Bible doesn't take us. And so we have to be comfortable 
And we've talked about this a lot as we've dealt, dealt with, um, uh, dealt with uh, the doctrine of God. But at the end of the day, we have to be comfortable with tensions. If we're not, then we lose all kinds of truths about God. So um, this will be dealt with in greater detail when we get to chapter 5 and the providence of God. Any final thoughts on that? Yeah, well, and then to respond to that, some have gone as far as to say, well, this is just allegorical. You know, the story of God and Satan didn't really happen. It's just to point us to some greater truth or greater reality, which I think is garbage. Um, you know, we're not we're not reading the Bible right when we get to that kind of conclusion. So, um, so yeah, again, it comes to this issue of we've got tension and we've got to be comfortable with it. I think it's a good place to be. I, just, I do. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, we we would have we would have all the intellectual pieces sorted out, and so in the end, throwing our hands up and saying, "I leave it all to you, Lord. <laughs> I trust in your wisdom. I trust in in your goodness, and all of this." That yeah, I don't. I think that's a good a good trust in the Lord. The issue the issues we're dealing with these are things that get brought up all the time when you're dealing with non-believers and uh, skeptics in the world. It's foolish, yeah. Right, their faith is in the fallible. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a really good point and very important that we don't see evil in terms of God's sovereignty. And just cast it aside and say, well, then it's not evil because God ordained it to be. We don't call evil good. And we don't call that which is good evil. We can't do that. When we see what's evil, we... Um, and I will say, there there have been those in the past who have heretically gotten to the place where they say, well, there really truly is no evil then. And that is a conclusion that's been drawn. If all of this is true, and they believed it was true, then in the end, nothing is really evil which is is crazy because God calls it evil because it is against that which he has decreed as good and right. Um, so you're, you're, you're right on in wanting to be careful with the balance. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think we could say that about all the biblical tensions. If we don't have a little bit of... Uh, uncomfortable fear with not wanting to, you know, go too far in either direction, then we're going to. And so we've got to be, we've always kind of, you know, if you think of it in terms, what is that weight machine in the gym that I've never used where you grab uh, handles on both sides and what is that thing? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So if you, when you get here, if you hold that for a little while or you see those Olympians on the rings and they're like doing this thing out here, Eventually they, you know, I, every time I think of these tensions, I think of that, that it's this really uncomfortable, like I really want to just let go right now, but I can't. I've got to hold on to it. I can't let go. Um, or it's all going to come crashing down in terms of my ability to grasp exactly what is going on in the scriptures. So it's very important. Amen. And that's, you know, very much the reason why in our confession that statement for his own glory is attached to the, the summary statement. Excuse me, we didn't have time tonight to get to it, but that, that is the next part, that all of this is working 
to the praise of His glorious grace. Sure. Well, and the most prominent atheists that write a lot of books these days, this is one of the areas that they really hammer in terms of Christian faith, is the area of evil and suffering. If your God is so good, and part of the problem is that the mantra about God has always been, well, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, which isn't untrue, uh, but we're not dealing, as we've talked about, we're not dealing with the whole aspect of who God is and His nature, and the fullness of the God of, of God. And so, obviously, the conclusion to an unbelieving world is, well, if God is so loving, then why is it that evil and suffering exists? So, um, these are very important issues for us to have a good grasp on, because we're dealing with them. Uh, regularly if we're engaged in the evangelistic task of Christians. So it's an important deal, especially as we start to look globally as well because there's, we think there's evil all around us here. As you get to the rest of the world, it's all the more magnified. Jesus loves your Muslim friend. Okay, we'll, we'll close on that. <laughs> Jeff, you mind praying for us? Thanks.